ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Joanne Hill, Chief Advisor of Research at SIBOVEST, who I would say Joanne is one of the true ETF industry luminaries. This is someone who was involved with ETFs back in their earliest days. I believe she was one of the first, if not the first, sell-side ETF analyst when she was with Goldman Sachs. She then moved on to Pro shares for nine years and helped grow them into a top 10 ETF issuer. She co-authored the CFA Institute's uh, monograph on ETFs. And actually, she's on the board of governors for the CFA Institute itself. Uh, she was also one of the founding members of Women in ETFs. She's currently on the U.S. board of that organization. I'll go through the rest of her uh, resume a, a bit later. It's impressive. But I'm just telling you, we're talking about someone who knows ETFs inside and out. So this will be fun. We're going to revisit some of those earlier days in ETFs. Uh, Joanne has some great battle stories that I think you'll enjoy hearing. Uh, we'll also discuss her thoughts on the current state of the industry and what has her excited moving forward. This should be a fantastic conversation. Also joining me this week will be J.D. Gardner, founder of Aptus ETFs which if you're not familiar with Aptis, I've got to tell you, as I dug into their lineup, this is a unique ETF issuer. They have some interesting products led by their defined risk ETF, ticker symbol DRSK, good ticker. Uh, this ladders investment grade bonds. It holds a basket of call options, and then it offers some hedging through uh, buying put options. And all of their ETFs use calls and puts in some form or fashion. But you might be surprised to learn Aptis is managing nearly $2 billion in ETFs. This isn't some little uh, upstart issuer. This is an up-and-coming provider who's brought in nearly $800 million just over the past year. So we're going to dive into their ETF lineup and find out why it is resonating with investors. 
and also just discuss the uh, current markets and how investors should be thinking about portfolio construction right now. On that note, to begin this week, I have Tom Hendrickson on the line with me from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Tom, of course, is Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify. We're going to look at some uh, really interesting data regarding what advisors might be doing with portfolio construction right now and how that's evolved over the past year or two. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, how have you been? Welcome back to the podcast. Been very well. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's like uh, 75, 80 degrees here today. Perfect day. Usually it's much hotter, so it's just nice. I'm sitting in studio here, but looking out just at a perfect blue sky, not too hot. I love it. That's great to hear. That's awesome. All right. So look, you and I have talked multiple times this year about uh, how not much is working in portfolios, right? The S&P 500 is down 18% year to date. You look at broad bonds, those are down 11%. Most other asset classes are negative outside of primarily commodities and uh, some alternative strategies. And I think the easy takeaway is simply that the market environment has changed, right? 2022's market is not last year's market. However, it's one thing for us to say that, to say that the market's changed. It's another to have some very interesting data to back that up. And that's exactly what you have for us this week. You've gone back and looked at your advisor behavioral data in 2022 compared to 2021 and even uh, 2020, as I understand it. And we're going to walk through that this week. Now, uh, as always, before we do that, I know I ask you this every time you're on the podcast, but we we do always have new listeners joining us. Do you mind just briefly explaining where this data comes from? Absolutely. So across the Vetify platform, our our mission is ultimately to educate advisors and, and investors of all stripes along their financial journey and and ultimately be a a resource and a tool which will help them achieve their results. And so we do that through, you know, a real focus on education and also, you know, through an array of content that we're putting in front of them every day. You could think about articles, you could think about tools, you can think about webcasts, you can think about video content, all these sorts of things are are pieces of digital um, content that they can consume ultimately aiding their decision-making around portfolio construction and ultimately, you know, hoping that we are helping in their journey of, of client success as well. And so all of that interaction that we have with the community across the Vetify platform generates a lot of data. So we have a really good finger on the pulse of what people and what specifically advisors are looking at at any given point in time. And Nate, we're, we've talked uh, about this data in the past. And what's interesting is that our, our archive of data goes back a long way. And, and so one of the projects that we've had is, is going deeper and mining insights that are longer term in nature. And we're going to tease a few of those out now. And as we think about, um, you know, how busy advisors are, there's a lot going on in their lives. I'm sure you could attest to that. There's a lot of uh, demands on their time. So the, the time in which they're doing in-depth research about investment strategies, portfolio construction, you know, specific products, it's not 100% of their time. 
they've got you know client conversations, prospect conversations, a whole bunch of other things that are going on. But what we try to hone in on is that when an advisor is in that mindset, and so for every minute or every half hour or every hour of time that they are doing research, where are they focusing that time? And we can, you know, slice and dice the data that we have in a number of different and interesting ways. You could think about of every 30 minutes of time, how are they spending that time as an advisor on specific asset classes, specific investment strategies, and then drilling down all the way, um, you know, down to different products and, and where they're spending their time analyzing each of those products. Ultimately, all of that gives us a window of insight to inform how do we deliver more value to that user? What is the content that we're putting in front of them? What is the research team, the thought leadership team, our editorial team? What is our data science team, our product team? What is everyone working on to better the lives of that advisor? And that's what we're going to talk a little, a little bit today when, when you say, like, we're going to pull the lens up. I think it's a fascinating time in markets over the last couple of years. And there's been, to your point at the setup, uh, some pretty big shifts. And we're seeing that in advisor behavior. Yeah, and to be clear here, so what, what exactly did you look into this week with this data we're going to look at? And I guess why? What, what intrigued you about uh, looking at this data? Yeah, so what, what I looked at, Nate, was at the asset class level um, and, and then a couple of slices of specific uh, drill downs where advisors are spending their time. So when I say asset class, so think of alternatives, commodities, U.S. fixed income, international fixed income, international equity, U.S. equity, those types of high-level kind of perspectives on where advisors are spending their time. I did go a little bit deeper when we talk about U.S. equities, for example, into, into the high-dividend space, and I want to talk you know, briefly about that, although that's a well-trodden path I think you've talked about in the past. But it's, it's at that level, and then I did you know, continue on down the path of when folks are looking at some of these areas of, of, that stood out of the uh, jumped off the page in terms of where they were spending their time, also on some of the specific tickers and strategies that they were looking at within the broader context of that asset class research. Okay, so that's perfect. Let's get into this data. I'm very curious, what stood out to you? What did you uh, find as you looked at this? Sure. So, you know, the first one um, it isn't going to be a surprise to anyone, but it, it really jumps off the page when you look at it from a behavioral perspective. And, and maybe before jumping in, Nate, it's worth so the, the data set that, that I analyzed here, there's three data sets. So I looked at June of 2020, June of 2021, and then also June of 2022, albeit, you know, there's a couple of days that we're missing in that month, but it, it's statistically significant so we can compare the three. And, and if, you, if, you know, as much as maybe, you know, maybe we don't want to, but just from a pure markets perspective, if we roll back the clock and think about where the market was and where investor sentiment and where advisors' um, needs and demands were happening. When we go all the way back to June of 2020, it was very, very different than what we're experiencing today. And then also June of 2021, you know, going into last summer, there was a bit of a reprieve in what was going on in COVID. There was you know, some, some broad-based optimism. You know, some of the case numbers were coming down. The summer was somewhat normal when compared to 2020. Of course, things you know, changed in the fall. But, but it's those three data points, uh, those points in time that I, that I looked at. And so the first one that jumped off the page was, was the interest in technology. And so, so ultimately, um, you know, we've seen in the markets, we've seen in flows, we've seen in performance, but we also see it in advisor behavior. 
So that was, it was somewhat flat between, you know, advisor interest in June of 2021 versus 2020, but we see it really dive off of a cliff um, as we look at June of 2022 versus either 2021 or 2020. It's, it's about half. And, and so to use that same metric that I mentioned up front is that if we think about um, a minute of advisor attention focused on the technology space, and if, if before on the broad asset class analysis, they were looking at, you know, the equity space and within it technology. And before, if they were spending, you know, 20% of that, that time allocated in June of 2021, they're now spending about 10%. Mm. And so it's down by about 50% year over year. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of what we're seeing in the broader market and, and this larger shift of, um, you know, risk off uh, some of these high growth names getting scrutinized, valuations coming in. Um, you know, advisors are, are concerned about other things within their portfolio and they're looking elsewhere. And so we're, we're seeing that in, in a big, big way in the data. And, and so, again, just to be clear, I mean, what you're seeing is ETFs that uh, track the technology sector or actively manage technology ETFs. You're seeing a significant drop off this year compared to last year and even going Correct. back. OK, Correct. And, and even even more broadly, Nate, like all of the content would be tagged, even at the article level, at the video level, all of that type of thing. We're seeing a broad based decline in the interest in that type of content. Um, and so that's not only at the ticker level, but it's, it's across the different kind of content platforms. You know, what's interesting to me about that, like I think about just the news flow over the past week, and I'm sure you saw that uh, Facebook or, or Meta and Netflix were added to the Russell 1000 value index on Friday. And I, I tweeted this out, but you, you know what else was added? PayPal, GameStop, Pinterest, and Zoom. All those were added to Russell 1000 value. And uh, I, obviously, I, I keep referencing Twitter, but uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balachunas, he tweeted out that this was the index equivalent of when Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, uh, and I, I think he had somebody else in there became part of classic rock. Uh, which, you know, I love that reference. But the, the, the bottom line here is that value is now working better than growth. And, uh, you, you know, you look at the performance here to date. Wall Street Journal over the weekend had an article that said Russell 1000 value is outperforming Russell 1000 growth by the largest amount at this point in the year since 2002. And if this holds, this would actually be the largest annual outperformance by value since 2001. And so... To me, again, it makes sense. I know we, we, we look at this data, this, this different data that you slice and dice uh, every month or so, but, but I think this one is right in advisors' faces. They see this changing market regime, and I think what will be interesting to see is if value ETFs start popping up in your, uh, your Vetify data. Well, exactly. Well, and they, you know, it, the, the Russell uh, 1000 value versus Russell 1000 growth is somewhat emblematic of this broader shift that we're talking about. And, and, you know, for so long, for nearly a decade between, you know, 2010 and, you know, up until not that long ago, you know, growth was just highly outperforming value. And we're seeing a, a fairly big sea change in that regard. Um, to the To the point about where advisors are doing their research, you know, one thing to make make very clear is that that's not to say that advisors don't believe in certain asset classes or, or certain, um, you know, elements of their portfolio construction. A lot of advisor conversation is driven by what's on top of mind of their clients as well. So they need to be armed with data and, and tools to dissect and, and talk about positions, why they're either holding or in a rebalance, they're, they're actually buying more of. 
And so it's not to say that advisors are selling out of this space, but it's that they're not, uh, you know, the demand on their time from a research perspective isn't as high, which is different than the flows. All right. So technology ETF research is down. What else did you find? So another one, Nate, and we'll touch on this briefly, because as I mentioned, it's somewhat well-trodden path here. The interest, you know, uh, this is interesting because I think that it's something that has been somewhat consistent in a changing market is that the, the thirst demand uh, for yield remains really, really high. And a lot of advisors, they, they think that that's one of the biggest problems within their, their portfolio is where to find consistent yield, especially advisors who you know, manage money for a maybe a bit older clientele who, who has uh, income needs either at or in retirement. And so what I what jumped off the page to me was this consistent interest in, in high dividend yield. So in 2022, that has just gone up over 2021, which was up over 2020 in a meaningful material way. And so as we roll back the clock to um, you know, June 2020, very different market environment, wasn't as much interest as there was in 2021. And now that need for yield and where folks are looking they, they continue to come back to the high dividend yield equity space as an area to find and solve for that problem that they have within their portfolio. Yeah, I think there's certainly an element of a, of a thirst for yield or hunt for yield here. But I think the other thing with a space is just the performance. If you go through and look at some of the most popular um, high dividend ETFs, they're all significantly outperforming the S&P 500. I mentioned the S&P 500 down uh, 18% year to date. Some of these high dividend uh, yielding ETFs are actually positive. Or if they're down, they're only down a, a few percentage points. And I, I actually saw an article, I believe it was yesterday from Bloomberg, where they noted dividend ETFs have taken in about $25 billion this year, which they said is a record. And they said that if inflows uh, continue at the pace they're at, of course, given that we're halfway through the year, they could reach $50 billion by the end of the year, which would blow away the prior uh, record. But again, I think it really comes back to returns and the fact that there has been significant outperformance here. You start looking under the hood of, of these ETFs, and uh, Todd Rosenbluth and I, again, covered this a, a few weeks ago, but you know these ETFs tend to be heavier in sectors like uh, energy, which has been the top performing sector this year. Utilities, these are areas that are doing really well or at least much better than the broader market when you think about something like utilities. And I think you have a, a growing number of investors who they just don't want to stand in front of the rising rate freight train on bonds. So they're, they're actually much more comfortable taking on equity risk and dividend strategies to, to get income. I think that's reflective of flows. I think that, that's reflective of what you're seeing on uh, the Vetify platform. Well, that's exactly right, Nate. And, and I think, you know, and we can move on to the next insight. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned some of the, the change in valuations, things that were, pre, you know, previously within the high growth, you know, higher valued categories moving into now uh, names that are value. The look under the, the hood component is is very important as advisors and investors are looking at how to gain, you know, exposure to uh, dividend paying equities or high high dividend paying equities. The construction, the composition, not only are they very different amongst the, the, you know, the array of products that are out there, but some of the composition is changing based on the underlying valuations. And, you know, Goldman just came out with a great piece that, that walked through how some of the, you know, the utility sector is, is generally, you know, highly valued right now. And so just to 
like you say, crack open the hood, do the research, understand, you know, what exposure you're getting, what the expected outcome is in different market environments. I think that's never been more important across all asset classes, but for sure within the dividend space as well. All right. A few minutes left here. Any other uh, data that, that stood out to you here? Yeah, and, and maybe this is the biggest one, Nate, and, and um, you know, maybe, maybe last and, and certainly not least, but, but fixed income. And, and so this, this conundrum that advisors and investors have had, I think, is, is one of the areas that is the most challenging. And so we've seen a, a, a fairly big shift in attention on this area, you know, specifically the U.S. fixed income slug of our, of our research. And so uh, the 2022 engagement up significantly over 2020 and then, and then uh, sorry, 2021 up significantly over 2020. And then that trend continues 2022 over 2021. So sort of this longer term uh, increased focus on, on the world of fixed income. And so, uh, you know, a couple of areas within fixed income jumped out to me where um, advisors were spending, you know, uh, an overweight of their research attention, if you will, is in the short duration space, and then also the exposure to municipal bonds. And so when you unpack a couple of, uh, you know, areas within there, uh, advisors are very much worried about um, rates, and they're worried about inflation, and they're worried about what those mean to the fixed income component of their portfolio, be it 40%, 35% or 30%. But, you know, as, as they look at, at, at rates and they look at that risk, they're certainly looking to decrease the duration risk. And they're doing that through, you know, there's a number of different strategies out there just to pick a couple. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's active strategies that are short duration in nature, and there's also index strategies. So, JPST, you know, VUSB, those are a couple tickers that are more active in the way that they um, achieve that exposure. BIL, SHY, those are a couple of, of tickers that are, are index-based short-duration strategies. But, you know, Nate, I think that you, you've talked quite a bit about fixed income and, and the challenge here and, um, you know, the, the risks and understanding them. And so as you think about specifically this focus on fixed income and, and pulling in duration risk, um, you know, as an advisor, how, how are you thinking about that? How are you positioning, you know, given that, that there's so many moving pieces and it's quite dynamic? Yeah, we're going to need another hour to get into all that. But <laughs> you, you know what I would say, Tom? Look, I people know I always say I, I don't have a crystal ball. But I was talking early last year, I think even going back to 2020, that the risk-reward dynamics in uh, fixed income as a whole didn't make sense to me, especially taking on significant duration risk. It just did not make sense to me in the environment that we were in. And I mentioned this uh, rising rate freight train on bonds. You know, I've always been of the belief bonds are bonds, stocks are stocks. So that's fine if advisors want to look over to the, the high dividend yielding equity side. But I've always believed bonds play a very important role in a portfolio. They are a ballast and, and it, they're a good way for you to control risk within a portfolio. And so when you talk about uh, th this interest in shorter duration ETFs, I think there are a growing number of investors who are content to just wait out the current market environment uh, and, and do so by parking in shorter duration bond ETFs. They can scoop up a little more yield than obviously being parked in cash, not do any real damage to their portfolios, even if rates continue to go up. And my, my guess is there are also some uh, investors who are probably betting on a more dovish Fed, which that could help shorter duration bond ETFs if front end rates started to decline. But I, I just think it's a... It's an easy place to hide out. And this year, you 
again, just where we started at the top, I mentioned broad bonds down 11% this year. So popular ETFs like AGG, the iShares Core US Aggregate Bond ETF, or BND, the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. Th those are very popular holdings and advisor portfolios. And advisors look at performance and see those down 11% in, in that, say, 40% allocation. That's not a great place to be. And so I think advisors just continue to shorten up duration, and they're looking to products that you mentioned, something like JPST, the JP Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF. I just pulled up the return on that. It's actually down, but only down about a half of a percent. That's a lot better than being down 11%. Uh, Mint comes to mind, the PIMCO Enhanced Short Maturity ETF. Uh, and then just shorter-term treasury, something like the Spider Bloomberg 1-3 to three Month T-Bill ETF, BIL, th those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I think, Tom, it makes a ton of sense to me that that's where you're seeing interest on the platform. Well, and, real, and really quick, you know, you mentioned the, the ag down 11%. Um, you know, that's not a spot that any advisor, you know, I, I don't think that is currently practicing has ever been in. Like, in, in terms of uncharted territory, the performance is, is as bad as it's been year to date as, as I think, you know, the data goes back 40 plus years. And so I think this, this area where advisors are, are really scratching their heads and really taking a very fine look at, at how they're gaining that exposure. The only other thing I would add, Nate, and, and you and I have touched on this and, and from an optimist standpoint, the white space of the ETF industry to continue to innovate and provide advisors more solutions um, within the fixed income realm, I think we're gonna see that continue. I think we've seen, you know, some some really in innovative products come to market to date. And I think that's going to uh, do nothing but give advisors more choice of how they want to handle that in client portfolios. 100% agree. We, we've said for quite a while that there's a lot of white space, particularly in the actively managed fixed income uh, ETF arena. But, Tom, excellent insight as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify. At Vanguard, clients are more than investors, they're owners. That means we always seek to focus on client objectives, aligning our goals with investor goals, and staying disciplined. Vanguard fixed income investors own low-cost products that reflect these priorities, which can enhance outcomes. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com to obtain a fund prospectus or, if available, a summary prospectus which contains investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information. Read and consider carefully before investing. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds which own Vanguard. Investments in bond funds are subject to interest rate, credit, and inflation risk. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. My next guest is Joanne Hill, Chief Advisor of Research at SIBOVEST. And I'll tell you now, I could probably spend the next hour just going through her uh, resume. I mean, you're talking about a true industry luminary. She was previously head of institutional investment strategy at ProShares, who, of course, is a top 10 ETF issuer. Prior to that, she was with Goldman Sachs, where she was a managing director leading their global equity index quantitative and derivatives research. I believe she was also the first sell-side ETF analyst, like ever. 
She's a recipient of the William F. Sharp Indexing Lifetime Achievement Award, which that's certainly not a dime a dozen award. She's one of the founding members and was the first co-president of Women in ETFs. Uh, I can keep going here. Uh, She serves on the editorial boards of the Financial Analyst Journal and Journal of Beta Investment Strategies. She's co-authored, along with the very good friends of this podcast, Dave Nottigan and Matt Hogan, A Comprehensive Guide to Exchange-Traded Funds, published by the CFA Institute Research Foundation, which she's actually on the board of governors for the CFA Institute itself. And she's now on the line with me from just outside Charleston, South Carolina. Joanne, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Well, thank you so much for that great introduction. And uh, I have been so fortunate to have had a a great seat at the at this uh, show that ETFs have put on for almost three decades now. Uh, next year is, I think, 30th anniversary of, of the spider. So, uh, and it kind of keeps me engaged, as as you mentioned. Uh, I, I I think that Debbie Furr and I were probably the first ETF analysts. Um, me at, at Goldman and she at she at Morgan Stanley. But it, it was it was an interesting ride. Um, for sure. So, well, I think that's a perfect starting point. Yeah, why don't we start by taking a little bit of a stroll down memory lane, uh, and you know maybe you can talk about the role with Goldman Sachs and, and sort of how and why right. and when you first got involved with ETFs. Yeah, and it's funny because now everyone thinks that ETFs were just you know such a great growth story, and and they have had a high you know high rate of growth since the beginning, but. But it was very rocky going in early days. And um, so uh, so just to put this in context, uh, my job was to lead a strategy for indexing. Uh, it was really an institutional space in the 90s at Goldman. Uh, there were, you know, index managers, index futures use uh, globally, index options, um, and you know there was at that point when uh, when when iShares was launched, I think there thirty to forty percent of defined benefit plans were invested in index strategies. So it was well established in equities at that time, but retail was nowhere. I mean, Vanguard had some mutual funds. Indexing was less than ten percent, and. Um, it was, uh, and and the spider was out there, but it was very small and not really promoted that much because I I just it it was not clear why it was needed because the institutions already had plenty of tools at low cost. So what happened was, you know, uh, a woman, yay, Patty Dunn, CEO of Barclays Global Investors, was a visionary, and she along with Lee Cranefist wanted to compete with all that money flowing into. Uh, into tech funds in the tech bubble, and they said, you know, let's show show these folks some real, you know, index strategies at low fees, and maybe we can compete and and gain some traction in the retail space. So they worked hard at it. You know, everyone rolled their eyes when they were going to launch fifty seven funds. They bought the webs from Morgan Stanley, and guess when they launched it? Spring of two thousand. Right at the beginning of a three, almost three-year bear market that was so deep, and so it was really tough going. Um, the uh, the hedge funds knew how to short ETFs because they did it with the queues. So they, in a way, some of the early users were more trading accounts shorting these products. So it really took until the mid two thousands, um, and 
where I was sitting, um, Barclays was a, BGI was a client. They wanted, uh, re, you know, we wrote a research report about ETFs going mainstream, Barbara Mueller and I, that became, of course, sort of the first guide to ETFs. And, uh, and, you know, we put out a card. It was three pages long with all the ETFs. And we always, we put the underlying share volume, which was like, whoa, why do we need to know that? <laughs> so quite a time. Well, what do you when think? Well, Go ahead. I, no, I'm just curious. I mean, what do you think changed to help transition ETFs over to the retail investor? Because you make a good point in that. I think people look at the iShares and the Vanguards and the State Streets today, and they just assume that that success was there from the beginning. But but that wasn't the case. It wasn't always an easy path. And so I'm just curious. I mean, as you look back on how successful ETFs have become now, what, what do you attribute that to? And I, I know people always like to talk about the lower cost and the rise of passive Clearly, those are huge drivers, but maybe if we put those two things aside, what else do you think contributed to ETF success and, and helped get them into the mainstream, into the retail investors' hands? Right. Well, kind of around 2004, 2005, all of the stars begin to, began to align um, for retail to get, to get interested. I mean, we came out of that deep bear market, so equities were, were, were doing very well. And, um, and iShares really began marketing and advertising in a big way. But the other, uh, Vanguard, uh, was, it was very controversial at Vanguard to, to launch ETFs. Jack Bogle did not want them, but Gus Sauter had the, had the vision there to see it. I don't know if people remember, they were called Vipers to, uh, they were launched in 2004. Uh, so Vanguard, uh, gets, you know, enters the space, makes it easy. And finally, I think that the real, uh, one of the real key drivers was the ease of access. So technology, accessing them via brokerage accounts, investors began to use the internet in a big way. And this, uh, so they were really, uh, if you think about it, they're a technology innovation too, because of the way, that, way they, their access compared to the way mutual funds were. So, um, so, so, and more financial advisors began to pay attention, but it was still a very small tactical allocation. They were looking for new things after the bear market to show to their clients. I'm curious, when did you first realize that ETFs were going to be the success that they are today? Like, did you know that early on or did it take a while for you to see that? Well, the re- I, I, okay, I would say that I was early to the being a convert because of what I saw as the as the range of the product. Okay. And uh, so what I mean here is that I had the largest institutions, multi-billion dollar pension plans using these products. And I could see that small retail could use it. And there, and I think and the big reasons they've been so successful is that uh, ETF, have such a variety of uses, right? And for the largest and the smallest investors, for people with intraday horizons, for, with three-year horizons, there's really no other investment product out there that, um, you know, that range of investors uses, except for T-bills. But T-bills are very short-term, right? So because they were really a packaging vehicle and a market access vehicle, um, and, and, you know, it brought together all this diverse group of investors. And I think that 
really, you know, is, is very key to their success and continues to be. I want to talk a little bit about your current role with SIBO uh, Vest and some of their ETF strategies. But before we do that, I'm just curious, as you look at the current ETF landscape, and we're around 3,000 U.S. listed products, uh, depending upon where the market's at, assets are, you know, north of $6 trillion. It, it touched up close to $7 right. trillion in the U.S. But w- as you look at the current landscape and the, and the overall health of the industry, wh- what do you see? Do you, what do you see moving forward? Well, you know, I think in a way it has been a natural evolution. Um, so let me go back. One of the, so the first successes were in indexes that everyone knew, right, mm-hmm. but packaged now in low-fee accessible ETFs, right, mostly equity indexes. Yeah, I, the next phase was fixed income, and, and I said from the beginning that ETFs were going to revolutionize the fixed income space and the trading because there really wasn't portfolio trading or indexing in, in fixed income until ETFs came along. So, you know, that's been really embraced now. And, and then, you know, systematic active, smart beta, right? Uh, you know, innovation, see, we can do these in ETFs. And, and now we're in the phase of, of some active strategies um, can actually uh, be be successful. You know, that can be thematic strategies that are really just a step up from trading stocks, right? I mean, I think this is going to be a, a continued um, kind of piece of the industry. Um, investors, right, when they talk about how they feel about you know, the, their outlook, they don't always mention stocks. They might em- mention a sector or a, you know, a new emerging theme. And so it's great to have trading vehicles around to do that. And, you know, there are great active managers, some of whom, you know, now can package their strength. Bill Gross is the first to do it. And fixed income, you know, there's a lot of active ETFs out there. But um, what will limit, I think, the active side is, is part the transparency, but that um, the way they are sold sort of separates the end user, right, from where they access. So with mutual funds, you had a sales force. They knew who their customers were, um, whereas with ETFs, um, it's, it's a lot more complicated sales and distribution model. And I think that would be hard for some active managers to adapt to in addition to the low fees. So I see active growing, but not replacing uh, the, the, the mutual fund, you know, strategies that are out there. It'll be a bigger part, but not, you know, there'll still be a lot of good mutual fund managers that will work better in that packaging. Joanne, on this note of, of innovation in the industry, let, let's talk a little bit more about your current role with SIBO Vest. And when I think about SIBO Vest, I mean, obviously, they're heavily involved with options-based ETF strategies, uh, clearly innovative. And, and I think about the range of strategies being made available to investors now, utilizing options and, and packaging those unique strategies into ETFs. In my mind, th- this is probably exhibit A of, of the innovation in the ETF space. Right. Can, can, can you talk about this segment of the ETF market? Wh- which, by the way, this is getting a lot more attention now, given the current uh, market environment. Right. Yeah, well, this is another case where, you know, I have always covered a range of index products throughout my career, and, you know, you never know when those stars are going to align. You have to be ready with product when it happens, and it's happening now for uh, option-based strategies, equity option-based strategies in ETFs, um, because we finally have 
60-40, you know, not performing as well as it has for many, many, many decades, for a couple decades here. But, yes, so as I was talking about this kind of evolution of, of products in ETF packaging, it's been a long time coming, but, you know, I think we are now in this, you know, the, this current phase is not just active strategies, but the opportunity to put option-based strategies in ETF. So institutions have been, I, you know, I, the term I like to use is options allow you to reshape your return pattern, okay? Um, in other words, get, you know, more income, you know, less downside versus upside to go away from that bell-shaped normal distribution. And institutions have been doing this. And in the 90s, I worked with, you know, multi-billion dollar pension plans to do, you know, downside risk management strategies during the tech bubble, right? Um, And the, the, you know, with ETFs, you know, this, this ability, you know, options can be very complicated to use, like, like fixed income securities, right? They have a term, right? Uh, they have, so you have to, you know, they expire, you have to roll them, you know, there are certain aspects of trading that, you know, it's better for a professional trader to do. There's, you know, figuring out what is the right design, combining them with indexes, so uh, ETF managers in this space um, really uh, can can pull all these resources together from trading to product innovation and come out with strategies like, you know, right now we have uh, buffer protect strategies that, uh, you know, give different degrees of downside participation, you know, paid for by capping upside. You know, we've also seen uh, different, you know, target income strategies where, um, you know, you could, like, like some strategies that QYLD, right, you could cover or write options against the entire equity exposure. But there's also uh, other ETFs that are coming out now, um, like SIBOVEST has, has one uh, KNG, where you, you're writing on just a portion of the equity exposure to achieve, a, you know, kind of a step up in income behind above the S&P dividend yield. So there's, um, you know, I think it's it's going to be a whole category of ETFs, and, you know, there's a lot of education that is needed for investors to use them, in the you know, to fit their investment objectives. But I think the managers out there are doing a good job in uh, in their websites in, in sharing information, you know, on what the features are and how they work. No, I, I agree. And again, I just think looking at the current market environment, as a matter of fact, I'm going to visit with an issuer here in just a couple of minutes in Aptus ETFs, who is using uh, calls and puts within their strategies. And I think it gets back to, to what you said, shaping investor returns. If investors can have right. some level of confidence around what the what, what the pattern of returns is that they can get or the type of risk they're taking on and, and maybe manage that to a little bit better degree, I think we're going to continue to see an uptake in, in those particular products. Right. And, yeah, I mean, in fixed income, it has its limitations for risk management if we are going to begin to see, uh, you know, positive correlation between stocks and bonds, as we painfully saw this year, right? And so what, um, by by more focused, targeted downside risk management, right, you can 
uh, you can, you know, mo- you can reduce participation for a correction or for a deeper, deeper decline. There's, and you can diversify across horizons. About 20% of SIBOVEST uh, ETF assets are in strategies that span a range of horizons or have a tactical way of thinking about what strategy to employ. So these are catching on. Joanne, just uh, two minutes left here. I want to make sure we discuss women in ETFs because this has really become a a prominent organization within our industry, and I would say even beyond uh, the the ETF industry. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, what this organization does and and how you're helping, uh, you know, improve gender equality in asset management? Right, right, right. Well, you know, our our, our mission is connecting, inspiring, and supporting, you know, advancement for women in the ETF industry. And we, you know, it's almost 10 years ago that the founding members, we had the idea for this at an Inside ETF conference, 2013, and it was officially launched 2014. I mean, has caught on. We have, I think, 7,000. I've lost track of how many members we have across around the world. Uh, you know, we have chapters in every every financial city that you know, in, in even in Africa, South Africa, um, and uh, and we have almost 20 percent of our members are men because men are supportive of the advancement of women in our industry. And I think as as the labor market gets tight, you know, we're working with uh, with HR departments because this will attract more women into our industry. That we have this welcoming group, uh, and and I think with with ETFs because the ecosystem is so diverse, everyone from lawyers, compliance, sales, investment management, it provides an opportunity for us all to get together more virtually than in real than in, than physically lately, but. Um, and to put on conferences, do education, uh, bring speakers on professional development for women uh, to, you know, to the participants in the industry. Um, so it's been a great, great fun for me to be involved. And I'm actually about to step down from the board. And, and we have a great set of next generation of leaders taking, taking over. So that's wonderful. Well, for listeners, I would definitely uh, recommend checking out the website if you're interested in the organization. That's womeninetfs.com. Joanne, I'm so glad we could finally do this. Really enjoyed the conversation. We'll definitely have to do this again. But thank you for joining me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That was Joanne Hill, Chief Advisor of Research at SIBOVEST. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is J.D. Gardner, founder of Aptis ETFs. And I would say Aptis is a bit of an under-the-radar ETF issuer. 
so this may surprise some people. They currently offer five ETFs with nearly $2 billion in assets. That's led by the Aptis Defined Risk ETF, ticker symbol DRSK, D-Risk. Very nice ticker there. And JD is now on the line with me from Fairhope, Alabama. JD, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Nate, the pleasure is mine. I, I appreciate I appreciate this podcast, and I've been a listener, and I'm just surprised that you invited a hillbilly from Alabama on, so I appreciate that. <laughs> well, well, hey, look, I do think some investors might be surprised to learn that you're managing nearly $2 billion in ETFs, and I checked this morning, so I'm showing you've taken in around $800 million just over the past year or so, which puts you in pretty good company in the ETF space. So give us some background on the ETF business. I, I know the first ETF came to market in 2016, but it's really been over the past couple of years that I, I feel like things have really accelerated. So talk about the path here. Definitely. So it, it's so that's a that question I could take a, a bunch of different routes, but um, I got mesmerized by the ETF structure. And when we were kind of originally launching the whole idea was to have passive ETFs, but have very active, like have a lot of active share within the index that we were creating. Um, and that was that was before the active ETF rule passed, which I think it's probably worth spending a minute or two on that because I think it is, it's 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 a snowball effect that's impacting the asset management industry um, in ways that I don't think that the industry is really aware of just quite yet. So, well, the the short version of a longer much longer story the last eight years is hey we were really attracted to the the etf infrastructure and and the efficiencies we could get out of it um when you first launch etfs and i'm sure anybody that's ever launched an etf can can um relate to this you're available only at like the only place you can actually go get assets is fidelity schwab td you know you're basically limited to the independent channels um, so that's what we did, and we started building relationships. And then this whole service world opened up for us where um, we're both an asset manager but also a service provider for advisors. Like, we just try to be as good of a partner as we can be. And so it's led to a couple billion in ETF assets. We have another probably $2.5 bill in kind of just other assets we help advisors manage. And so that's a, a very shorthand version of kind of the path that, you know, we're about $4.5 billion now and – um, I like appreciate you saying under the radar. I, I, I do enjoy when somebody says, where are you located? And it's like lower Alabama, Fairhope. <laughs> never heard of it. Never heard of you. <laughs> and you're like, well, we've got a, we've got a couple dollars under management. Definitely not BlackRock, but we feel like we're <laughs> we're building something that makes makes some sense. So. All right. So, look, your most popular ETF is currently the Aptis Defined Risk ETF. Uh, this seeks to mitigate what you call the bad math of bonds. So explain what this ETF does. Yes, so D-Risk is really our bond replacement, and we launched it. We launched it because the big drivers were, number one, we felt like there's issues with bonds. Obviously, this year has been like that they've been brought to the forefront. Um, we think those issues will probably be, uh, you'll, the reasons that you held bonds in the past are not going to be the reasons to hold bonds in the future, and I think we needed something to help like directly replace bonds. What I mean by directly is, can we generate better returns, but can we deliver the risk that's similar to a bond? Because you you know, investors, everybody's, you know, it's, it's all relative returns when everything's up and interest rates are dropping and equity markets are flying and the Fed's pumping liquidity and uh, everybody's concerned about relative performance. But as soon as that music stops, 
everybody wants absolute returns. And, and so you've got these issues with bonds right now where absolute returns are negative when you've got risk assets negative. And so we, we wanted to launch something that could have similar risk metrics as a typical bond fund, but have much better upside. And fortunately, we launched in 18. We've been able to to deliver on what we had hoped for. And so I think the the backdrop for bonds then and now are make a whole lot of sense for having to, to kind of rethink your bond allocation. And last thing I'll say, and this could open up a can, but we also saw tons of demand for like structured products, buffered notes, you know, you, you name it, however you want to characterize some of that stuff. Um, and, and we think those make sense up to a certain point, but we, we also think that there's a lot of kind of underlying issues with those types of, of exposures that we wanted to, you know, we wanted to offer you know, full liquidity, similar risk-adjusted returns, no matter what day of the week it is. Um, and that's that's kind of what, what we've been able to accomplish. In terms of what de-risk actually holds, as I understand it, there's there's three basic components here. So your laddering investment-grade bonds, you then have a basket of call options, which, which obviously you could capture some upside. Uh, and as I understand it, those options are on individual stocks, or they could be on, on indexes. And then you have a hedge in place where, where you're buying put options. Can you just talk about like how those three work together? Yes, yes. So you're right. So about ninety percent of de-risk, ninety to ninety-five percent of de-risk is just going to be bonds, and we typically build a seven-year ladder or less in investment-grade corporate bonds. Um, so there's really nothing exciting there. And then uh, we always like where the interesting part of de-risk lies is is in the options, and I know options is you know, a financial dirty word for most people. You hear options and you run run away as fast as you can. But um, everything that we do is, is very, like, defined risk. Obviously, that's the name of the fund. Um, but we, we think in general that you have to have, from a portfolio construction standpoint, we're huge advocates of owning less bonds, owning more stocks as returns drivers, but blending that over-addition or that over-allocation to equities with forms of volatility ownership. And so we get our volatility ownership through puts and calls and the way that we blend calls with puts, like you've got this real interesting relationship where when markets are rising, we should be positioned because of the inherent leverage of the call options um, to, to participate in the upside. But when markets are falling, you know, you can see this during the COVID crash during the fourth quarter of 2018, there's a really, really interesting relationship with how we build the puts and calls together, how we blend them together, where you actually own, um, you, you can benefit from volatility rising. That, that's kind of the point of you know, our, our view of, hey, we think volatility is a good thing to own in asset allocation, given the backdrop we have in markets today. And by the way, I think listeners would appreciate to know that uh, I saw you're using target maturity bond ETFs for the bond exposure, right? ETFs like bullet shares the iShares term Correct. bond ETFs. What, why do you like using those for, for that exposure? Yeah, the biggest thing is secondary pricing. And that's a fancy way of saying when, when a shareholder goes to interact with our fund, we want our pricing to be as tight as possible. And if we were to spend the time to build, like to actually go buy the underlying bonds, you know, the market makers would have to price that accordingly. And so when you when you actually use I-bonds or bullet shares or whatever we're using, those are actually loaded up on equity pricing chassis. And that may be too complex for today's discussion, but 
the what happens is market makers get to they can control risk much in a much more defined manner, and so therefore spreads are tighter and shareholders get to interact with the fund a lot more efficiently. So that's the reason we use them. All right. The other four ETFs under your umbrella are the Aptis Collard Income Opportunity ETF, ticker symbol ACIO. There's the Aptis Drawdown Managed Equity ETF, ADME, the Aptis International Drawdown Managed Strategy, ticker IDME, and then the Opus Small Cap Value ETF, ticker OSCV. Do you want to, uh, I don't know, maybe perhaps highlight ACIO, or you can talk about another ETF if, if you'd like. I'd love to just uh, have you dig into one of these other strategies and, and talk about what they do. Yeah, I, if I could, can can I just highlight, and ACIO has definitely been, it's probably gathered the most interest um, year to date, and we're, we're actually getting some, you know, and again, we're in Fairhope, Alabama, not used to, like, we've, the business has grown, assets have grown, we're really, you know, I still pinch myself, but we've had a lot of institutional interest in ACO, which has been like just not normal phone calls for us, which has been a lot of fun. Um, but but before that, I'd love to just talk through why I think we're, you know, the, the, the flows that we've seen into our suite of funds has happened. Um, and yeah, I think please. that might dovetail into maybe, yes. So I think that Anything that's options-based, I think there's two huge points to make. I'm a huge advocate that if you can opt to not own bonds in favor of some type of hedged equity, I'm a big fan of that right now. Um, and, and we don't have to go into all the reasons, but you know, I know rates have risen. Bonds might be more attractive than they were six months ago, but when you're dealing with inflationary pressure, you know, it's still a very difficult environment for fixed interest payments. And so... If you can own more equity, I think that solves a lot of issues. And so there's a lot of options-based things out there. What, like, we are trying to be, we're trying to deliver not only on the messaging of options-based exposures, but also, like, efficiency in that messaging. So when it comes to the execution, and what I mean by that is, if you look at most of the options-based gorillas out there, and I'm not going to name any names, but pretty much everything is calendar constrained. And so obviously when you're dealing with the price of a stock or when you're dealing with an underlying stock, you just have to worry about price. There's not a whole lot of other derivatives of that. When you're dealing with options, you've got all the Greeks to worry about. And what I've never quite understood, I love options-based exposure. I think you can define risk better. I think you can control return streams better. I think you can avoid things that lack potential of return. Um, but when you're dealing with something that's calendar constrained, and like this is a simple example, but like say you put a hedge on, right? Like you've got a market hedge on, and that hedge carries, let's just say, a 40 delta. It's a 40 delta position, which means if the underlying moves by 1%, it's going to move by 40 cents. So, well, say the market sells off 7 or 8%, and you're constrained by the calendar, you can't actually adjust that exposure. You, you basically hold a bear fund now, meaning you cannot participate in the upside. And so what we're trying to do as a suite is we're trying to harness the efficiencies in this active ETF structure to deliver options-based exposure that is not calendar-constrained and we think has structural advantages in how we're we're deploying it. And I think that's why we've got the interest that we've had recently. Yeah, and just about a minute left. So how does that translate to something like ACIO? Explain what that does. Just, just high level. Yep. Yeah, very very high level. Aptis collared income strategy. It's it's a 
it's a simple collar. So you're long a basket of stocks, you're short covered calls on those stocks, and then you're long puts. And the way that we, like the differences in, in ACO is, number one, we're not constrained by the calendars. We're actively managing the hedges in our options position. But we sell individual covered calls. That is um, selling individual covered calls. Typically, you sell individual calls on single stocks at much higher implied vols than overall index exposure. And there's a reason for that, obviously. But when you look at our structure versus other structures that typically have, like we have a structural advantage, in my opinion, in that our upside is typically much higher. Those covered calls are your ceiling, and we get to raise the ceiling, but we don't have to necessarily adjust the floor because of that implied volatility differential. And so being able to have that structure and have the ability to actively manage that structure as markets dictate the need to do that has been a really, really big advantage for us versus you know other options-based competitors. And I think that's partly why having these different return drivers embedded and a lower vol return stream is a really good thing to have right now, not being handcuffed, if, if you can, you know, not be handcuffed to fixed income. Well, JD, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed uh, the conversation this week. Congratulations on all the success. Certainly look forward to connecting again down the road. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having us. That was JD Gardner, founder of Aptus ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. At this time, I want to thank iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Jim Smigiel, Chief Investment Officer at SEI. So he's going to discuss their recent entrance into ETFs. And then Quadratic Capital's Nancy Davis will go in-depth on the current uh, fixed income markets and spotlight their interest rate volatility and inflation hedge ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.